You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. We're about to bring you an hour of film criticism. My name is Thomas Cordell. I am joined by fellow hosts and critics Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard. Unfortunately, quite late in the day, Alexandra Helen Nicholas couldn't make it in. Hope her and hers are, uh, are doing well. Yes, yeah. get well soon. Uh, but good evening to you both. Good evening to you both. <laughs> now, tonight we're going to be looking at two films set during the classical Hollywood era that both concern the allegations that the film in- industry was being infiltrated by communists. We're going to take a look at Trombo. This is a biopic about the acclaimed scriptwriter Dalton Trombo, who was part of the Hollywood 10. They were jailed and blacklisted for their political affiliations. And then on a much, much lighter note, we're going to take a look at Hail Caesar. This is the new film by the Coen brothers, where a studio fixer attempts to solve a variety of problems throughout the film, including the kidnapping of a major star by, you guessed it, a group of communist writers. But before we delve into old-school Hollywood, we're now going to take a look at the recently released English film 45 Years, starring Charlotte Rampling. As a woman who, over the course of six days, start to realise that her husband, played by Tom Courtney, may never have been as invested in their marriage as she has been. Uh, This is triggered by him receiving a letter about the body of an ex-girlfriend finally being recovered after she died tragically in her 20s. Writer-director Andrew Haig, who until now has predominantly focused on queer film, uh, queer themes in his work, uh, has a real talent for subtly using film style to evoke private and public spaces, which he did so impressively in his debut feature film, Weekend. We covered Weekend on this show. I think Josh Wintara was part of the team, and we all universally adored that film. I think that that, that use of specially camera distance to evoke private and public space is really evident again in 45 years and in fact the idea of expressing feelings publicly as opposed to privately pretty much underpins the entire emotional impact of this film i was impressed cerise you've literally just come from a screening of 45 years how are you feeling about it Look, it cheered me up no end. But, uh, it, it, it's interesting because I've been in melodrama land a lot this last week and in an uncanny echo of all of the Fassbender films I've been watching just lately, uh, there's a song that's key to this film, that's key to a Fassbender film I've been drowning my own sorrows in and that's The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. Uh, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes by The Platters. Um, and it's a, a, a song that signals uh, turmoil and turbulence in a relationship. And it does in this film too, though, at quite different ends of the narrative. Um, but look, yes, this is moving. It's, it's a moving film. Charlotte Rampling, Tom Courtney, um, veterans both. And um, neither of them are phoning it in in their old age. Uh, one of them may have said some daft things uh, outside of film narrative world recently with respect to a certain um, Oscars situation, which we are not to allude to anymore this evening. But they're both terrific on screen and they have a real chemistry, which is why this film's quite upsetting when you get a sense of uh, their relationship being placed under duress by something that's just come out of the blue and the real shock being that perhaps something that appears to have come out of the blue has in fact been in the there's background noise for all of 45 years of a relationship just as that anniversary is due to be celebrated um 
what you were saying about private and personal space before, Thomas, that's, uh, that really registered with me watching this. Also, just um, English resolve under te- uh, great duress too. Um, this, this stoic stiff upper lipidness is put to great uh, strain. Good working class folk in a sort of white bread English village, very white in fact. Uh, again, I'm trying not to bring Charlotte Rampling and her daft things said about um, certain things into focus, but it's... Um, it's a quintessentially English film and uh, deals with quintessentially English responses to emotional turmoil, and I found it very, very moving. Yeah, look, I had an interesting reaction to this. Well, interesting is probably not the, the best word, but for me this is a film that probably falls into the category of a film that I can admire critically from a distance. I can acknowledge that, uh, as you just raised, Therese, the chemistry between the, the two leads is utterly believable. It's very authentic that these are this is a couple that have been in a relationship for 45 um, years in a way that uh, evoked a more, but in, in, a, in a very different context, I guess. But that sense of the the authenticity of of uh, a couple that you just buy from the beginning, but also curiously, particularly given the director's previous film was named Weekend, which for me was such a, a warmly emotional film and a, and a wonderful film. This actually reminded me of the Roger Michel film Le Weekend, which we covered on the show a couple of years ago. Um, which was written by Hanif Qureshi and starred Lindsay Duncan and Jim Broadbent. And, and in a similar way, it's about a couple who go to Paris to celebrate their anniversary for a weekend and all the things that have sort of been bubbling under the surface suddenly you know, rise up and, and create this sort of fracture in this what what's, was seemingly a stable relationship, which is really what is at the core of 45 years. I think it's, the, it's almost looking at the fragility of a relationship where one event from the past can suddenly sort of rear its ugly head and have both partners questioning the, this, the entirety of this and the longevity of a, of a relationship. And I found that um, engaging from an intellectual perspective, but I never really got emotionally invested. I felt like I was... Uh, at a constant emotional remove from this film with probably one exception and for me it's it's cinematically the most remarkable sequence is when um, we have the Charlotte Rampling character stows away to the attic to, to watch a slideshow of her partner's ex-partner you know from photographs that were presumably taken back in the 1960s and there's a revelation that comes out of that but the way in which that, that sequence is filmed we get an almost a mirror effect where the images that she's watching reproduce the her stance and her pose so it seems like they're mirror images of the same almost the same woman and there was something so ghostly and spectral and sort of surreal about that moment and so powerful it was the one moment where i really was drawn into the world and the emotional world of what this character in particular the rampling character was going through yeah that's a very strong scene look i think my favorite scene is the very final one and i couldn't help but sort of compare this to, to Phoenix, uh, in terms of this, in terms of the fact that I think it's a very restrained emotional. Emotionally, there's a lot of restraint in this film, but the final scene, and in fact, the moment the film cuts that emotion and hits you like a tidal wave. Like I found that final sequence enormously moving. You know, for reasons I can't talk about now because there'll be a lot of people who are yet to see the film. But it's when. Uh, the situation comes crashing into reality for for one of the characters and and just the the the, the gesture this character does the look on their face i'm thinking of it now and actually getting a, a few shivers it's a, a really powerful moment and i think this film is working with that idea of english restraint i think it's very much in there in that grand tradition of of brief encounter where people are holding back and funnily enough when we talked about weekend i think i compared yeah. weekend to brief encounter weekend is very overtly referencing brief encounter with that train station ending funnily enough we had a similar conversation about carol <laughs> yes isn't it it's, it's interesting how this amazing classic film about 
heterosexual romance has been probably most overtly referenced in recent times in two queer films, being Weekend and, and Carol. I suppose those are the films working with ideas of having to... Uh, to be so careful of the relationship being played out in in the public eye. It's that public-private thing again. It's really interesting you mentioned Phoenix because that was a film really concerned with doppelgangering and uh, this film very much too. So uh, Charlotte Rampling's character Kate is rather dismayed when she discovers that uh, her husband's ex is really uncannily like her and not not only physically but her name is Katya, it's Kate as well. Mm. And that that whole scene in the attic is the scene that yeah, especially gets me too. There really is that real sense of the doubling, um, that that staring into the mirror, into the abyss, and um, and yeah, she's uh, not quite the same afterwards. I mean, she was already on a certain slippery slope because trust had dissolved a little in the relationship, and you know that things are. It's always difficult to patch things up after such moments, whether in film or in reality. But uh, yeah, I think I think that's really terrifically strong stuff and um, no amount of English reserve can necessarily patch all that up together again. I'm glad you brought up Le Weekend, Josh, because I kind of thought of that as well and I think the key difference is in Le Weekend that the couple had started off very strong and we hear about how they used to be and they changed over the course of their lives and marriage, especially the Jim Broadbent character who became very stuffy and and um, just, uh, I'm trying to find words to describe him that I don't apply to myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, where, where in... Um, in 45 years, I think that the tragedy is the her realisation that perhaps they never had a great foundation. Yeah, I think that that's there a was, fair point. There, there was something problematic from the beginning. And in a way, what happens to her in the six days this film is set over is really what happened to their entire relationship. So we get that sort of, yeah, sort of that six days is a, a microcosmos of their, their whole relationship. Um, yeah, and that's why the emotions do come crashing in, especially, I'm with you, Cerise, on the use of that song, Smoke Gets In Your Eyes. It's a powerfully emotive song anyway, but it, it's used so precisely in this film to great effect. That Yeah, and you're right, that final scene, even though for most of the film I, I sort of just confessed that I felt emotionally removed, that final scene does certainly pack a gut punch. And the the lighting in that moment is very expressive. The use of blue, the colour blue, from memory, I'm not even sure if I'm remembering this correctly, but for me it was so cold and blue and it almost like something out of Phoenix to a point, yeah. Actually, the other film you mentioned before, Josh, was Amour, and that's another interesting one to compare this to because the situation in Amour is the couple have survived emotionally and they're very much a loving couple, but one of them is on the decline and one is forced to become a carer. The other difference with this one is her realisation that she's effectively become his carer not, and, and that's completely changed the dynamic of the relationship in a way that she hadn't wanted. So, yeah, it, it is a slow burn of a film about really sad, tragic realisations. Um, I would recommend you see 45 Years First and then go and see Brooklyn, which is all about the potential of young love, just to get you... <laughs> <laughs> Brooklyn is the perfect antidote to 45 Years. Yeah. <laughs> Three, triple, ah. Oh. Trumbo. It's a new film by Jay Roach, who is best known for comedies such as Meet the Parents and the Austin Powers films. However, Trumbo is a straightforward historical drama about the acclaimed and politically outspoken Hollywood screenplay writer Dalton Trumbo, who in the 1940s got caught up in the House Committee on Un-American Activities investigations that that alleged communist propaganda was finding its way into Hollywood films. This is quite a serious period in American history. It didn't just affect Hollywood, but it affected a lot of other industries. But it, it, you know, the highlight was on what was happening in Hollywood because they were so 
so high profile. Uh, Trumbo was imprisoned and on release he was blacklisted by the studios which prevented him from working. Although as we see in this film he did continue to write covertly. He even won a couple of Academy Awards for writing under different names. Look, despite the fascinating subject matter in this film, the overall consensus that I've been hearing, and I'm going to have to agree, is that the film is a little bland and simplistic. It feels a bit like a TV movie of the week. And funnily enough, the presence of so many actors who are mostly associated with television these days does not help, although they're probably the strongest part of the film, so they're not the problem. I just think we've got a very lacklustre script and uh, direction in, in a film that should have been really good. Yeah, I'm going to echo that sentiment. This feels like an extremely prosaic, by-the-numbers telemovie that if it wasn't for the all-star cast, which includes people like Brian Cranston, Helen Mirren, Diane Lane, John Goodman, this, we could go on forever, and who I'll mention, come back to in just a moment, Louis C.K., this you know, would feel not out of place on a Sunday or a midday movie fair. And it's so frustrating because, as you mentioned, Thomas, this is such a rich period of American history. This is such a fascinating and, and ripe for exploration uh, subject in, in terms of politics, in terms of value systems, in terms of even just creating a sense of a, a parallel between contemporary politics and the relationship between between government, between institutions of, of, of Hollywood and, and audience and, and so on. I mean, what's, what's so frustrating is that I, th- I think this film just takes the cheap way out, which is to camp camp it up and the accents, the performances, with the exception of Louis C.K., who stands out because he's the singular naturalistic presence in a film in which everyone, including Cranston, seems to be turning this up to 12. And I think it has to come back to Roach and the screenwriter. And I think Roach's strength, and you may or may not be a fan of the Austin Powers films, but I think there was a certain panache in terms of the way in which he dealt with comedy. And there's some comic moments in here that really pop, but the problem is the rest of it doesn't, and I think it needed a stronger hand and a, and a firmer script. It, it is terribly bland. It's, it should be... Um, there's the, the stuff, the, the raw material for a terrific film here, uh, especially for anyone invested in Hollywood mythology, but that, this, this sure isn't it, notwithstanding this great cast. Um, where really, people like Helen Mirren are totally wasted. She's this cardboard cutout villain, an, an actual uh, famous Hollywood character, you know, a sort of a parasitic journalist who, who made and, and broke careers, uh, Hedda Hopper. Um, who, when we'll come to Hail Caesar, Tilda Swinton's character is a, a vague analogue for her uh, characters. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, this, this is so frustrating because it, it, it simplifies the, the issues ridiculously, including in a scene where um, Trumbo, uh, Cranston's Trumbo, explains communism to his daughter, uh, through a, a school ground metaphor of oh, yeah. what if you, know, if you shared your sandwiches, you know, it's, it's just it's terrible stuff. Um, John Goodman uh, is, is having a lot of fun, reminding me especially of some other roles, especially as William Castle in Joe Dante's Matinee, where he was uh, a, a, another character taken from Hollywood uh, mythology, and have, he was having a ball. And that film's a lot of fun and. You'd expect Jay Roach with his history in comedy to perhaps come at this sort of material with a bit of that sort of sensibility and it's just really missing from this film. And then we've got this very renowned comedian in the cast, Louis C.K., and he's just um, wasted as well. In fact, I actually found his performance... It actually made me quite uncomfortable because it's quite a different... Uh, and quite a different tenor to everyone else in the cast. He really does stand out because of the tonal well, shift. Yeah, it's it? really odd. Um, not, not least because he gets you know, some tragic stuff goes down with his character. 
Uh, Edward G. Robinson. I can't, I'm not sure who the actor is who portrays him. But Michael Stuhlberg is a great yeah. actor. He has yeah. a recurring role as one of the gang bosses in Boardwalk Empire. And, of course, uh, a serious man. Yes. Uh-huh. Crime Brothers, yeah. And who is it who plays John Wayne and is just awful in this? He's the guy um, from JAG. He's the lead actor from JAG who doesn't seem to have worked much since JAG. It's just terrible... <laughs> Say JAG again. Ter- JAG. <laughs> JAG. <laughs> terrible confrontation. Again, very simplistic, where, where Trumbo and... Uh, tries to almost... Uh, goad Wayne into thumping him in, in, while the, the press have the cameras poised and it, it, it gets so frustrating because it just it's it's this us or them it's not even a debate it's just a, a two positions stated and and that's as 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 much into the grey area as this film goes it just doesn't go there that was my frustration this is such a complex complicated series of events at a very you know, a very tumultuous time in, in America. And I thought at first the film was going to grapple with that, you know, but it, it really very quickly turns into goodies versus baddies and we are, as the audience, very much polarised to take the side of of one group against the other. And in broad strokes, that's appropriate, but if you're going to make a, a feature film and go into some of the minute detail, it's not really appropriate. I mean... It's sort of acknowledged at the start, but more could have been done about why so many Americans associate themselves as communists. I mean, it wasn't necessarily because they believed in the ideology. It's because that was the only movement at the time in direct opposition to fascism and um, uh, Nazism. Yep. And and you know, there, was, there was almost a bit of naivety about what was happening in the Soviet Union. I mean, if a lot of these people knew the realities of what was going on, they wouldn't call themselves communists. So it wasn't that simplistic and a lot of people including john wayne changed their politics radically over the course of their careers i mean and wayne is very much presented as a cartoonish villain in this as is um uh, yeah hedda hopper although from what i gather that wasn't too far from the real truth that she was quite demonic but um and the only and you know it's either us or them the only attempt to sort of show us the complications of these ha- these committees where people are asked to name names is what happens to Edward G. Robinson. Uh, but again, it, it just felt like the, the really the most simplistic way to present his kind of m- moral challenges or, or what's the word I'm looking for? He's he's the complexities of uh, of yeah the moral dilemma. Yeah, yeah. The, thank you. The dilemma. Yeah, it, it, you know what really happened is so fascinating and it's so much more complex than what this film gives us, and it is frustrating. And at points. It did occur to me it was like watching a poor person's Coen Brothers film because you do sort of have the... Especially when John Goodman appears, it yeah. suddenly felt like, yeah, a really bad Coen Brothers film. And then having seen Hail Caesar, which which coincidentally, I think, covers a lot of very similar ground and is a far richer, more sophisticated film, even though it's so much more lighthearted. That's my perspective anyway. We, we'll get on to that in, in the next segment. But I found Trumbo enormously frustrating because I have researched this period of history, as I, I know you have explicitly as well, Josh. Yeah, look, we both probably came at this through uh, on the waterfront being mm. and, and teaching this, this text. To, it was on the Year 12 uh, syllabus for a number of years in Victoria and now it's moved, um, some schools have moved back to, to Year 11, along with uh, other texts like The Crucible. I mean, this is something that's being studied. But this film, I wouldn't show it to a Year 12 audience or a Year 11 audience because I think it's so dumbed down. I think this is almost the uh, the only value in this text as a film text is like a Year 7 text. It's it's that kind of early high school, this is how we're going to kind of dumb this idea of communism down because it has no complexities. But the frustrating thing which you pointed towards, the Edward G. Robinson scene where we get hit the kind of the that moral dilemma, we get him abandoning his friends in the, in the face of, you know, the threatened loss of income. Come and so on. It feels like an afterthought. If this was a, a serious 
biopic, and I think this is still working very broadly in the biopic genre, if the film had focused on the relationship or the friendship and how that is torn apart, I think it would have dealt with the politics in a more sophisticated manner and you would have had richly drawn characters. And this film doesn't seem to have either of those things. And the, as you mentioned, Cerise, the comedy doesn't quite work. It sort of feels in there in parts but not, not quite in there enough. And we don't really get... The, uh, the balance. I mean, you, you had filmmakers at the time on the waterfront, Bud Schulberg, the screenwriter, and Elia Kazan, who did name names. And they, they're not even sort of mentioned, but they were also seen as sort of heroes and villains at the same time. Well, that's what's so fascinating about On the Waterfront. And I think if you want to understand this era better, go and watch On the Waterfront try, and go and try to catch a production of The Crucible, which presents the two different broad sides, but so, so much more complexity. I mean, what On the Waterfront showed us is that people did name names because they thought they were doing the right thing. They weren't the villains as they appear in this film. History has proven that they were wrong. They were misguided. It was a terrible thing. But, you know, Eli Kazan honestly believed he was doing the best thing for America. You know, he was an immigrant who passionately loved America, was a campaigner for social justice. It was a hell of a thing. He did naming names, and then as a response to the crucible made by his ex-friend, Arthur Miller, you know, this this broke up with their friendship, he made On the Waterfront, which is his plea for why it's important to inform for the good of the community. I mean, I think our conversation over the last few minutes has more complexity in it than the Trumbo. I I think um, also that the goodies who enter the film towards the end, these uh, very famous Hollywood characters, uh, also very cardboard cutouty, and I'm talking here about Kirk Douglas and Otto Preminger especially, (laughs) and I don't know who it is playing Preminger, but they're just... Phoned in the... Uh, is, it command, is it Commander Schultz from the, uh, Hogan series? It was a bit uh, like that, wasn't it? Oh, it was awful. Mm-hmm. Um, it was that... The, um, yeah. Trumbull! Yeah, 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 exactly. And it was, that was quite embarrassing. And I also don't know how close to the truth, especially Kirk Douglas's um, role in redeeming Trumbo's name and, and really pushing for his name to be credited in Spartacus is. And, and clearly this film's aiming to push uh, every... Push Hollywood having its own I am Spartacus moment and bringing Trumbo back into the fold and it's 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 extremely clunkily done. It's um, I certainly didn't feel like pumping my fist in the crowd and the audience myself. I just felt sort of sad. Uh, the film had already well and truly lost me by then, but um, I was just getting really sanctimonious now. And when Hollywood does sanctimony, especially when it's turning its eye inward, it's just embarrassing and. Um, yeah, I was, I was sad. Well, I mean, he cu- Roach cuts to a ridiculous close-up in that moment where the, the Trumbo character is sitting in the screening of uh, of Spartacus to get the extreme close-up. I think we get the reflection of his name in the credits reflected in the eye of these glasses or his iris itself. It's like really... That, that to me, sums up the entire film yeah. in terms of just how overstated everything seems to be. And to come back to a film we talked about last week or the week before, Steve Jobs, which I think I said at the time, felt refreshing because it doesn't do a play, uh, you know, a by-the-numbers type biopic, a chronology. You know, it has it has an idea at its core and it's played out structurally and, you know, through various themes like performance and so on. This feels just like we've gone backwards and this, I guess, um, an example of why I have no real love for the biopic genre more broadly. Oh, it's really, it's disappointing, isn't it? I, I sort of appreciated it on a very basic level that I got a, a sort of one-on-one guide to, to what 
went on, especially the post the post jailing. Like I, I actually wasn't aware that he worked on those films in particular uh, covertly, and I didn't realise he worked as a B film writer for so long. And I was so thrilled in one scene to see in the background a poster for Gun Crazy, hmm. which he co-wrote, and that's one of my favourite films from the classic Hollywood era of the B grade variety. Oh, it's one of my favourite films. Full stop. So I got a bit of a thrill out of that. I I, I had no idea. Uh, if only there had been more of those moments in this film and less of just the ham-fisted <laughs> laying it on so thick. And uh, it's not Shorts, it's Clink. We were after Clink. He was Clink, our cool uh, comedy Nazi we were, we were groping about for there. Did we just make up a comedy Nazi? Uh, no, no, no. We Shorts was the, the sidekick, he, the, the chubby on, um, you know, with the moustache. Um, That's who I was going <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. Clink, Clink was the Clink. monocled... Um, yeah, Han, possibly uh, modelled originally on uh, Erich von Stroheim because he was also uh, <laughs> yes, he was forever too. cast yeah. in those sorts of roles, played straight-ish. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Hail Caesar, this is probably the lightest film brothers Joel and Ethan Cohen have done in a little while, although it feels like the spiritual cousin to their dark and surreal 1991 masterpiece, in my mind anyway, their 1991 masterpiece, Barton Fink. Both films are about the Hollywood studio system with heavy mythological illusions that suggest Hollywood is just the manufactured extension of all that is wrong with capitalism and the American dream. Hail Caesar is set in the 1950s. It's about a fictionalised version of a real person, a real-life producer and studio fixer named Eddie Mannix, played by Josh Brolin, who's presented in the film as a Christ-like figure trying to maintain order and carry the sins of the studio on his back. The film is is bursting with really fun re creations of classical Hollywood genre films, but they're, they're kind of ever so slightly exaggerated in a way that's not flat-out parody. It, it, it's, it's fun and over-the-top and silly, but there's so much love for these films. It's more affectionate drawing laughs rather than being a parody. Um, and look, and throughout the film, Mannix has to resolve various problems. As a, a studio fixer, I think the film only takes place a little over one day, but his, his biggest problem is he needs to find the star of a big biblical epic who has been kidnapped by communist writers who very much embody the kind of thing that people in the 50s were terrified of writers being. They kind of embody these fears, but also they're presented as very thoughtful, intelligent, nice, lovely men. I, I, I think this entire film is the Coens beautifully having their cake and eating it too. It is an affectionate tribute to Hollywood and it's also a scathing critique. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a hoot. Uh, and uh, there are so many echoes of other films within it and even um, uh, accidental echoes. It's definitely very referential and uh, that Channing Tatum number. And again, I, I come back to Fassbinder. I've been watching so much Fassbinder lately and that whole dance sequence reminds me of Carell. Uh, it doesn't quite go there like Carell does, but it's... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it, the, the homoeroticism isn't dialed down exactly either and Channing Tatum's just having a ball. And so uh, my, my admiration for him just grows uh, by the film, seemingly. Uh, I did have a, a ball with this. I love the communist conspiracy uh, that is uh, the way it is presented here, that there's this weird, um, almost Soviet sci-fi-ish building on Malibu Beach somewhere, housing all of these um, Marxists who naturally feud slightly amongst themselves too, as of course they will have. They've got to be factions within any such uh, such group, and they may not be as competent as they make out to be either, which is all part of the fun. We we do fear that uh, somehow they might come undone, much as um, 
everyone else in the film is is sort of being twisted and turned this way or that. The the muckraking journalist is struggling to journalist played by Tilda Swinton <laughs> struggling to to get those scoops. Um, there's a, a, a possible pregnancy that's going to be very awkward for the studios. Uh, how how to arrange something to uh, to some smoke to a smoke screen for that? Uh, one thing I enjoyed hugely is uh, just a little association i made watching this was with peter jackson's mockumentary forgotten silver in which a biblical epic being staged in the, in the uh, inhospitable territory in new zealand south island gets suddenly bankrolled by the soviets and all of the biblical references in it are expected to be changed into more marxist friendly sort of material great connection yeah, yeah well done. Well, uh, that's it's very hard to come by that particular mm. uh, film these days that's Possibly even Jackson's masterpiece. I think it's extraordinary. That and Heavenly Creatures and forget all that nonsense about goblins or whatever came later on. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Brain Dead. Oh, and Brain Dead. Oh, bless. <laughs> Bad but, taste. Uh, so yes, but we have a uh, midfield. We, we, we have digressed slightly. Focus, people. Um, yeah, th- this is so much fun. Everyone is on song. Scarlett Johansson, I think there's a, uh, a few things each of you would like to say about her memorable appearance in this film and part of some Busby Berkeley-esque spectacular swing pool action. Uh, look, it's the very, a very affectionate recreation of that Busley Berkeley type swimming pool stuff. And I don't know, I'm just going to be a complete barbarian and say, you know, last week we saw Cerise Ronan in a green bathing suit and this week it was Scarlett Johansson and I'm very happy. Wow, where do I begin with this? The joy, <laughs> the joy I had at the time and just in your introduction and, and the flashbacks I'm getting, I'm, I can't stop beaming because this mm. film is pure, unadulterated joy. And while it seems to be fun, or it obviously is fun, and while I think some people have taken this as quite frivolous, I think there's actually some fairly, not maybe not complex in terms of their depth, but some serious political themes, and which, given the last film we talked about, Trumbo, I, th- I feel like this film is actually far more complex in the way in which it deals with political themes than the film that actually was supposedly and outwardly trying to be so political. And and that's what I, I think I appreciate about this film, because structurally, the, the Fixer character, the Josh Brolin character, is it's quite a loose narrative. This is not the detective, this is not hardball detective genre. He's there as more of a structuring device, I think, in the film, or though he's fantastic and uses his character as a catalyst for these wonderful set pieces as he strolls around the the, the studio backlot solving problem after after problem and you nailed it thomas when you said it, it's not smug it's not mocking it, the way in which it recreates these scenes there's a there's an authenticity that is not sort of jaded or cynical or or trying to make something camp that wasn't actually camp like that at, at the time. It, it's the Coen's love letter to cinema in the way, say, Hugo was is partly Scorsese's love letter to, to cinema. Um, and, and just in terms of the way in which it weaves these themes of communism and capitalism, you know, the fact that we have the Brolin character is shifting between, you know, does he want to stay in this role with the studio, which means he has almost no family time and he's constantly sort of announcing his sins to his <laughs> poor priest, or is he going to take a job with Lockheed Martin because that's the future of America? And the way in which it uses these what seem to be offhand references i think speaks to a deeper play with politics at work within these various systems sexuality pregnancy you know the blacklist the the role of the media with the wonderful tilda swinton 
And I keep coming back to Josh Brolin, and I think even though Brolinescence doesn't have the same ring as McConnaissance, I think we are in the midst. <laughs> I'm calling it now. I'm trying to get this trending. Brolinescence has to happen because his work over the last five or six years, particularly in the last two or three, has been really exceptional. You know, we all showered him with adulation about his ability to fillet a chocolate-covered banana in Inherent Vice. <laughs> but he's been remarkable in so many things, particularly with the Coens, going back to No Country for Old Men. That was, that was his big break, wasn't it, that was, for his, this renaissance? And that was the yeah. start of a guy who can play drama but as he's proven with P.T. Anderson he can do comedy just mm. as well and probably with the exception of Old Boy which really didn't go down well with critics Sicario Everest True Grit his cameo of Men in Black 3 I mean he's done so much good work even the Wall Street sequel he was really impressive in yeah. um, and I, it's so great to see him on screen and he's just one of those guys that, that seems to fit with the Coens and the way in which they can switch so what seems to be effortlessly now from this wonderful run of, of such well executed dramatic films to back to what I think of Coens and the and the kind of eighties Coens, which is unadulterated joy. Yeah, look, I, I loved the Coens when they first arrived on the scene, and those first five films, especially uh, with, with Barton Fink's in there, I just think are all all masterpieces. And and then there's a whole period in the middle there where I didn't quite latch on; it didn't quite work for me. But sort of this run of No Country for Old Men and um, Inside Lewin Davis, which was my favorite, my film of the year a couple of years ago, and now these I, they're just so back on form. I mean, maybe they never left that form but they're just doing stuff that resonates with me again. And I think this is a really good example of their sharp comedic sensibilities but how there's so much meaning un- underlying all that uh, i just want to come back to this idea of you know manix this is the um josh brolin character being a christ-like figure you know i think he really is often presented in this kind of way of this man taking on the sins of the studio i mean we often see him framed against the film they're trying to make which is a big biblical epic and you know him being offered another job is very much you know the tempta- you know, Jesus being tempted by the snake. You know, he's being tempted to take this sort of unholy job that that take that that, that means less work but more destruction to society. And but but it, it's going to be an easier life for himself. And he sort of sees Hollywood as as his church. And that's where some of the really interesting, more savage critique comes into this film when you've got Hollywood as Christianity as capitalism and it's got no room for the kind of enlightenment that the communist writers are pushing which is a more philosophically based i mean the, the whole kind of drive of this studio is that we are manufacturing the dreams that make people happy and we are more important than than the truth and that kind of fits in very nicely with how we view religion as well you know there's so many layers going on with this film it's it's been really weird seeing some of the other critical response from people saying there's no point to this film or it's just a sprawl mess or it's just the Coens being self-indulgent because I think it's so it's so the, the, the core story and ideas are so tightly constructed I think they are being frivolous and having fun with the recreation of the western sequence the, the song and dance sequence the um you know the, the water sequence what are some of the other ones the, the biblical epic of course oh, fantastic chamber players directed by Ray Fine oh, the yeah. kind of uh, Noel Coward type yeah, yeah. That, uh, that was the bit I, I actually cried <laughs> laughing and I was the only one in the cinema crying laughing would that twist as simple yeah, I mean they are true. being indulgent with that but they're allowed to they're the goddamn Coen brothers you know and they don't they pay s- lip service because they yeah. allow the sequence to play out in its entirety 
reality. And that's something that I don't think you would have got in, an, in another film. The film yeah. is actually committed to that mode of, of exploring and actually giving each of those genres and moments its due. They get the mise-en-scene right. Like, yeah. the look of the film is right in all those moments. The lighting is right. The camera angles are right. The way it's edited. This is such an affectionate love letter to something they have huge personal issues with. I love the tension in this film. Yeah, even the uh, footage of people watching rushes. Uh, occasional aspect ratio changes quite subtly even. Um, there's there's a, a lot there for the, the real film fanatic and uh, lots of knowing n- nudges and winks um, without them being overdone. Um, we, we get that sense that Ray Fine's character might be something of a predatory homosexual let's say just possibly um there's there's always a sense of scandal in the Mm. wings and and much as hollywood was by all accounts uh reasonably back an alien back in the day but it was it was short-lived in that uh and at least superficially short-lived um this is in, in that poised in that interesting time where we suspect the Hayes Code must be beginning to have a bit of an influence because, yeah, as a studio fixer, he suddenly has a lot more work to do than, say, someone would have done in the Hollywood system in the 20s. So this is, um, you know, that, that's just hovering in the background and it's something that, uh, yeah, maybe this film will actually spark some interest in people out there to do a little bit of investigation into how Hollywood came to this point that depicted within this film uh, where there are all these... Um, uh, where the biblical epics are being pushed again. I mean, there's always been biblical epics coming from Hollywood. These are great source materials, uh, fairy tales, if you will, or actual you know, truth-telling, if you won't. Um, but uh, there's that, that rail says that this is a time where the, the morality police are beginning to, to have a, some sway in Hollywood, just as some people also begin to get a little bit politically enlightened and aware of the exploitation intrinsic to the system as well. And the film has a lot of fun with it from all angles. The other person, speaking of fun from all angles, that actually someone else mentioned this to me recently, and that is the role that Clooney plays and Clooney's relationship with the Coens and his willingness to play the buffoon, to play the fool, to, to act these kind of characters which we which seem to go contrary to how he appears elsewhere, particularly his, his work in kind of a independent or semi-independent cinema and, and art house cinema when he's kind of moved that way with his acting career post the, the Batman and Robin um, days. And he's really great in this. And I think the scenes towards the end when they start to resolve the Clooney's character and his kind of... Journey, for want of a lack of want of a better term, <laughs> um, is is really impressive, and I think the, the casting of Clooney in this role about the the actor who's kidnapped and sort of you know the question about his potential indoctrination at the hands of these communist scriptwriters, it's no coincidence given that this is the guy who directed Good Night and Good Luck, you know, one of the other most effective and really dynamic films about this era of filmmaking, 1950s communist, the era of Joseph McCarthy and so on. So, I, look, I, I think politically, t- to write this off, write this film off as a frivolous mess, I think is com- completely missed the point of this film and to, to do great disservice to actually the, the interesting politics that are wedded in and, and through this film. I'm going to give the last word to Alexandra Helder-Nicholas, who couldn't make it on tonight. She texted in to say, if it comes up, for the record, I loved Hail Caesar and thought its political history of that era was a thousand times more nuanced and thoughtful than the history rewriting self-indulgent garbage (laughs) Trumbo. It didn't even mention Trumbo's one film as director. Johnny got his gun. Oh, which is traumatising. Then Alex makes a comparison to a Metallica video. I yes, don't understand one, that bit. Just uh, one, about a ten-minute clip back in the day, 1990-ish, early 90s. The uh, No, yeah, oh, yeah, justice for all. Am I oh, showing right. myself off to be a metalhead from back in the day? Perhaps I am. 
There you but go. But that clip, that clip used great, uh, made great use of the footage from Johnny. Johnny oh, right, game. yeah, right. I, I understand now. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I think we all agree with Alex. Yeah. Look, Hail Caesar, fun and light-hearted. Absolutely, this film is a ball. Uh, frivolous and pointless. Absolutely not. If that's how you think of this film, I'm sorry, but you missed something. Your loss. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to the end of tonight's Plato's Cave. Forty-five years is on general release through Madman Entertainment. Trumbo is on general release through Entertainment One Film and Hail Caesar is on general release through Universal Pictures. Next week, we'll be playing an interview I did recently with Penelope Spheris, who made the cult series of music documentaries The Decline of Western Civilization, which have uh, recently been restored and will be screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image from next weekend. From Plato's Cave, it's goodnight from myself, Thomas, Josh and Cerise. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.